Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Welcome to the EquipCast. My name is Jim Jansen. I'm the Director of Pastoral Services here at the Archdiocese of Omaha. If you are just stumbling into the EquipCast, we have supplemental resources, show notes, uh, everything, big basket of goodies and treats on equip.archomaha.org. If you subscribe there, you'll get notice every time we release a podcast, as well as all the information on the blog and uh, the show notes and everything that goes with it. So today I am joined by Father Scott Hastings. Father, I think you were one of the first people I met when I came into the Archdiocese of Omaha. When I was still looking for housing, you helped connect me to the old St. Mary's Convent off 36 and Q. I think it was a joke. It's like, ha, you could live there. And after two days of getting turned down, like approaching apartments for uh, six and a half month leases and having the line suddenly go dead, I came back to you and said, hey, how serious was that convent thing? So, Father, I'm glad you're here. Feel a debt of gratitude for providing a place for my family and I to live. How are you doing today? You know, I'm doing really well. It's been a nice, quiet morning, and uh, it's a nice, well, just just a good a good Monday, good start to the week. Good. Father, tell us a little bit, like, what do you do here at the Chancery? I sometimes say that I'm like the director of the Departments of Necessary Evils, <laughs> which is really overstating it. Uh, I work with really <laughs> excellent people. I do day-to-day diocesan administration, and I am a practicing canon lawyer. So what I do is I have these two titles that don't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. I'm the vicar for clergy, and I am the judicial vicar, which means that I am Archbishop Lucas's delegate for all matters involving clergy from formation until death. And <laughs> Oh, that's for, all. Okay. Right. <laughs> Something like a weird mix of HR and internal affairs or the inspector general office. Uh, I often joke that I don't get invited to a lot of parties as a result. I also uh, oversee the the tribunal. We've got just a great staff. And the tribunal, among other things, works through annulments or just various canonical processes in the life of the church. So I do day-to-day admin. Deacon Gregorio Elisalde likes to call me Archbishop Lucas's right-hand guy. So that's what I do. I, I... return phone calls and and endless emails and try to support our priests and deacons and respond to the issues of the day. I never know what's coming before I walk into the office. (laughs) Okay. Well, Father, can you tell us a little bit about your journey, how long you've been a priest, kind of a little bit about your your faith journey? Where'd you first meet Jesus? Where'd you first experience the call to be a priest? How'd you get here? Sure. Um, I'm one of those people that does not remember a time when I did not know the action of Christ in my life. So uh, I grew up in a pretty normal Catholic family. My parents were really involved in in our parish. I grew up at St. Wenceslas Parish here in Omaha and went to St. Wenceslas for school. And the faith was just a regular part of our life. Uh, I thought we were just a pretty normal, regular family. The idea of priesthood was presented to me as something reasonable. My dad knew a lot of priests, and priests were came over to our house, or they just knew us. So for me, being a priest was as ordinary a thought as uh, being a lawyer or a plumber or any other kind of job. And um, went to college, and by the end of college, I really had the sense I couldn't shake that I should investigate the priesthood, and took all the regular turns, you know, in high school and college. And what did you study in college? Uh, economics and linguistics. So uh, my degree is in economics, but once I knew I was going into the seminary, I took as many classes in in languages as as I could. And kind of my my area of, just my area of fun study, I would say, is in languages. And it's something I've always liked, and it's just kind of come natural to me. And it's it's been nothing but joy as a priest because of the ability to work in Spanish. That's been super fun and super rewarding. I've been a priest since 2008, and I was assigned up in Madison County in, in Norfolk. I taught Spanish poorly for one year at Norfolk Catholic High School, and then I became the administrator, then the pastor of St. Leonard of Port Maurice Parish in Madison. And then after that, one day the archbishop called me and asked me to go to Rome to get a canon law degree, so I went over there. I had never been there before and studied the law for three years. People always say, well, what's canon law? And say, canon law is like, it's like a law degree from any other country. So I just happen <laughs> to have, I have a law degree, but my law degree is from the Vatican. So it's like 
you know, if you go down to the Mexican consulate, there are lawyers here in Omaha at the Mexican consulate who have law degrees from Mexico who can't practice law in American courts. But when you go to the Mexican consulate, you need a Mexican lawyer. So I'm like that. I'm just like a Vatican lawyer who happens to work for the church here in Omaha. And those are the people on our staff here, too, in the tribunal. And so I went to Rome, and then since then, I've that was a three-year program, and I'm, I don't know how many years that is now. I guess I'm in my fifth year here, I think, working in the chancery office, and I'm a resident at St. Peter's downtown, which is on 28th and Leavenworth. Yeah, one of our of most things. diverse parishes. Yeah, on Sunday, it's the church building that has the largest number of languages of Mass on a weekend. And it's a, it's a fair-sized parish. So uh, I think... I think if, if I have the numbers right, I think it's about 8,000 people who are there. So it's, it would be a little bit smaller than, for example, Sacred Heart in Norfolk. But it's, it's a big community. Yeah. Um, what, what are the language groups represented there? So there, we say there's Mass in, in four languages, but in reality, one of those languages is, is Latin, so that doesn't really count. So there's Vietnamese, Spanish, and English. Those three communities are there, and they're active. They're all, each one of them is, has its own culture, its own kind of life, but they're all there sharing the same space. I was just thinking this weekend that the Vietnamese community has been looking at the possibility of going to another building because they've grown and grown. But part of the fun of St. Peter's is that we're all kind of on top of each other, and it feels about like an anthill on Sundays. It's not fun for parking, but it's it's fun just to be in a place which is hopping all day long. You know, hours of confessions, hours and hours of masses, you know, there's three priests there, so it's just going all the time, which is a it's a real fun experience. Sundays aren't very much a day of rest for us, but that's okay. That's why we're priests. Mm. That's fantastic. You know, I think as you talked earlier, I think you said an ordinary kind of normal Catholic family. I forget the exact words that you used. But to me, I, my, my first thought was like, that actually doesn't sound, well, it doesn't sound typical. I, I think part of the magic is, if a family is actually living the faith in an ordinary way, and if the priesthood is presented as just kind of an ordinary option, that's, you know, it's kind of like common sense isn't common. That's an exceptionally ordinary way to bring, you know, vocations to life. So I, I appreciate that. That's a great anecdote from your background. Well, Father, I want to dive into today's topic. October 1st, Archbishop Lucas hosted a pastoral conference virtually this year. All the pastors of the archdiocese and selected leaders at their invitation gathered together watching this pastoral conference where the Archbishop announced a big goal for parishes to become missional communities, and he laid out some characteristics of what those missional communities look like. Can you just start us off, talk a little bit about the goal and these characteristics, just give us kind of like a high-level overview of what happened. Sure. So several years ago, maybe almost five years ago now, we went through this, what we call the visioning process, and we landed on this phrase that the, that the Archbishop's vision for the Archdiocese is one church encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. So when that vision came, we had a series of goals and priorities that we wanted to carry out, both internally, kind of structurally for the church, but then also for the larger community. And we laid those out, we had a plan, we executed that plan, kind of culminated in Arch Omaha Unite at the CHI Health Center uh, here in Omaha, which was a great event. You were the MC for, or one of the MCs? Reluctantly, reluctantly. reluctantly. Uh, (laughs) But it was fun. You did a great job. Ah, thank you. uh, Somebody uh, had to watch over Calvin. Yeah, well, actually, Calvin and I, I thought, had a good time that day. It It was a fun, full day. And the, the, the presenters on the panels were really magnificent. I learned a lot that day. It was certainly fruitful for me. Uh, not, that, not that that's the measure of the success of the event, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless, it was fruitful for me. So uh, after that event, we, we didn't go back to the drawing board. We said, well, what, what's next? So we have this vision. What do we do? And uh, we brought together that same original group of people plus some extra people just because people come and go. And we discussed this question of, okay, well, what's the next set of goals and priorities for this one church encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy? And the clear idea which arose was that, you know, in light of the changing demographics in the life of the church, we can either keep doing what we're doing now and go out of business, or we can change some of the things we're doing and see if we can't respond to those demographic changes as the Lord is asking us to do in an authentic Catholic way to bring new life to this place. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think you're alluding to something that, you know, I've used the metaphor before, that these changing demographics, that's a reality that many of us, you know, faithful Catholics, even here in Nebraska, 
we kind of swim in it so much. It's like, it's like a fish in water. You know, the, the old joke is fish is like, man, what, how's the water today? It's like, what's water? Sometimes it's just the environment we live in that we almost don't recognize it. We don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but can you just break that down a little bit, what what you mean when you talk about these demographic changes that we're facing? Sure. I'd say, uh, by like by analogy, I lived at your parish for a while down at St. Bernadette's in Bellevue, and uh, or as they say down there, in Bellevue. And I was, sometimes they call it South Omaha. I don't think it is South Omaha. But anyway, I'm a, by the way, I'm, I, I never get tired of saying it. I love Omaha and I love her history. Omaha, historically, the queen city of the Missouri Valley. And Omaha history is a big kind of passion of mine. So that aside, to put that aside. It's uh, another podcast. We, get, we should do it. I, I heard you give a great tour of the city. Uh, a gastronomic tour and historical tour of the city and the 23 counties of Northeast Nebraska, as it turns out. So. Maybe I should get invited to more parties. I don't know. So, <laughs> so I my uh, so if you can picture 50th and L Street in Omaha in your head, uh, there was a Kmart there forever and ever, and then one day there wasn't, and people said, "Well, well, wait a second, all the Kmart's are gone." Well, yeah, but on the other side, on the south side of 50th and L, there's Walmart neighborhood market, and there's a big Walmart down off Highway 75. There's another Walmart on 72nd and Pacific. And, you know, when the Walmarts came, Kmart was just biding its time. And Kmart didn't change its business model. Mm-hmm. And now the Kmart on 50th and L Street is a storage place. It's a it's an indoor storage location. I drive by it every day. Right. And there are no more Kmarts. Uh, I worked at Kmart when I was in high school. T-Y-F-S-A-K. Thank you for shopping at Kmart. And there, there aren't any anymore. But, you know, all of a sudden, they were just gone. And while we may have been able to say, oh, I guess there used to be a Kmart over here and over there. There used to be one in Benson, and now it's gone. I guess that's right. They're just all gone. And if you were going to the Kmart on 50th and L for years and years, you never really would have noticed the change, except we probably all had the experience. You went to Kmart, and there were fewer and fewer products in the store, and things got shabbier and shabbier and shabbier until finally it just closed. And if you look around the city, you know, there used to be a different type of Catholic life in the city. Hmm. And uh, if you go out in the country, we have, for example, did you know there used to be a parish in a town called Clyde, Nebraska, or a town called Winslow, Nebraska? In more recent memory, there was a church in Napier. These are towns that don't have Catholic churches anymore. They used to. It's just demographic shift is real. So outside of Omaha, there are fewer total people, not Catholics, but total people living in our 14 most rural counties than there were in 1890. And in 1890, just for the sake of reference, Wyatt Earp was still alive. There were still Mm. cowboys and Indians like old Westerns, and there were more people living there than there are today because of mechanized farming. And in the city, in the city, what we found is that those old historic pockets of really highly practicing Catholics with very small church buildings and lots of priests, those are just not the same anymore. So, you know, the Czech National Parish is St. Wenceslaus. You know, if I say, you say, what did you just say? And I say, St. Wenceslaus, pray for us. You should know that. It's the Czech National Parish. But if you go to St. Joseph, which is the German National Parish, and nobody calls it St. Joseph's, it's San Jose, because everybody there is a Latino, except for like 30 people who speak English at one of the masses, who are all good people, and it's their parish, and it's been, they've been there forever, and I don't want to diminish them. But the simple reality is that the number of Catholics who practice is decreasing, even mm-hmm. while the number of Catholics is increasing. So wait, wait, say that again, because I think that's a huge reality both of those together. So just say that again slow, because that's a, and maybe draw out some of the consequences of that. Sure. So the number of Catholics who practice the faith is decreasing, but the overall number of Catholics is increasing. I'll give you a quick snapshot to demonstrate what I'm talking about. We have, in the city of Omaha, in Spanish, we have a citywide baptism prep program. Now, other parishes can have their own program. That's fine. We're not taking anything away from pastors. But two months ago, we had 149 people in the program who would be parents and godparents. And godparents. And we asked those people at the end of the class, how many of you went to Mass this weekend? Four. How many of you will be going to Mass later today? There's still 7 o'clock Mass. Five. So nine of... Wait. 150. Wow. Nine and, of 150. And while you might of be people able, who are voluntarily coming to a baptism class. Right. And so while you might say, well, there's the time of the dispensation because of COVID, well, fine. Let's say we had 10 times the number of those people who are going to be there. You still would only have nine-fifteenths, which is... 
three-fifths. So you're still missing a huge number. So the reality is, is we're bringing people into the life of the church at a decreasing rate. Mm-hmm. But the people who are not Catholics who are not practicing, they are not practicing at an increasing rate. So what that means is we are getting, we are growing a large, the, 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 the fastest growing population in the church is the population of people who are Catholics in name only. Now, I don't, I don't, that has some political implications in the blogosphere and kind of in the Catholic echo chamber. So I don't mean Catholics in name only the way people talk about, I don't mean that as a political Right, you're not, you're not casting aspersions, right. it's right. just... What I mean to say is that it's like somebody who might be kind of culturally Catholic, similarly to the way you encounter, for example, uh, cultural Protestants, or even people who are culturally Jewish, who would say, I was just reading a, a biography recently of Gene Wilder, you know, the actor and comedian, mm-hmm. and he said, oh, I consider myself to be Jewish, but I don't believe in God. And I thought, oh, so that's what cultural Judaism looks like. And yes. we have more and more, more and more cultural Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Father, this is the same. I mean, I used to say this when I worked in campus ministry. You know, we'd get together with all the other campus ministers, all the denominations, everybody was there. And we used to joke that we served, as part of the Catholic campus ministry, we served the two largest denominations on campus. And sometimes they'd give us kind of a puzzled look. It's like, well, we serve Catholics, which are roughly 11%, and then we serve fallen away Catholics, which are roughly 11%. Right. Um, and those two were both largest in the next largest denomination of Missouri Synod Lutherans, at least at the University of Nebraska. I mean, it was kind of cute, but it was, it was actually a real distinction because most of the other denominations had a hard time accessing former Catholics because there was a distinct enough culture there that it was occasionally hard for them to penetrate. But it was still, it, yeah, it was just its own reality and its own group. So, I mean, we're down this rabbit hole anyway. I think it's helpful. Maybe we just go like all the way to the bottom. What would you say to those who, they're aware of these numbers, but there's a, a hesitancy to acknowledge them because it feels unpatriotic or maybe put a little bit more precisely, it feels unfaithful. Are we somehow, if we acknowledge that, man, my parish might go away, how do you counsel someone who's afraid to kind of embrace that or acknowledge that reality because it feels like they're being unfaithful, that they're doubting, you know, the Lord's promises to the church? Gosh, I think I would just say that the truth will set you free and, you know, be not afraid. (laughs) So, I mean, the, the truth is the truth. So I think we all probably had an experience probably at some point when we were younger, like with budgeting. You know, and we think like, uh, I keep losing money every month because I've said my budget is this, but in reality, I went to college in Texas and Texas has a fast food chain called Whataburger. Like Whataburger wasn't in my budget, but I kept going to Whataburger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, at the end of the month, like I didn't have enough money. Well, why didn't I have enough money? Well, I went to Whataburger. Well, that's not in my budget. Yeah, but I told myself I'm living inside of my means and I wasn't. And that, you know, that only works for so long. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that it's, it's a hard reality. I wouldn't want to tell anybody that it might not be even grief-causing, but it's the truth is the truth. So either either there's a hole in the hull of the ship or there's not, and looking the other direction isn't going to fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's helpful. I'm, I'm drawn back as you were speaking that. I can't reference it precisely, but there was a meditation. I mean, this is years ago that now Pope Emeritus Benedict gave on Revelation, the the early chapters. And he talked about how, you know, Jesus says in those early chapters, I will come and I will take away your lampstand, speaking right to some of the churches in Asia Minor. And of course he did, you know, those churches uh, don't exist. You're not allowed to say mass or, you know, kind of public celebrations of the faith there. And Pope Benedict at the time said that this is a message for the church of America and Europe. Like, he applied that warning that Christ gives to us. Yeah. If you want to know if it's possible, just look at North Africa. So, I mean, innumerable saints came from North Africa in the first five centuries of the life of the church. And, and it's, it's gone. That doesn't mean it'll never come back, but it's gone. Wow. Jesus' promise is that he will always be with us. But he doesn't necessarily promise that we're always going to be faithful and that a particular church is going to persist. That's probably a nice transition, I think. We started off talking about, okay, the archbishop announced this goal that every parish in the Archdiocese of Omaha would become a missional community within six years. And in some ways, we've just been talking about some of the need for that. 
the sense that we're being called to rediscover our missionary identity. Father, can you talk a little bit, like, what is a missional community and how is it maybe different from our current experience? A little bit of the contrast. Sure. I would say right now, most of our parishes are primarily inward-looking with a little bit of outward-looking. And I think that the goal for a missional community is that it be equally as outward-looking as it is inward-looking. Mm. So we can't make the mistake of, of just thinking it's only outward-looking, uh, because then we have all these people who are there who need, you know, who aren't going to receive their sacraments or be buried when they die or have right. be attended to by the priest. And that so would and be so awful. Forth. I'm right. thinking about the not burying people when they die. Right, exactly. Yeah, that would, that would things would stack up. So, uh, <laughs> so... Um, that would stink. <laughs> I have so many, so many jokes, so many jokes. Uh, joking about this is a dying art. Oh, come on. Okay, so my point is to say that. Um, again, right now, most of our parishes are primarily inward-looking. That's not bad, but that's what we've asked them to do. So, you know, for example, here in the Archdiocese, we have one of the highest per capita rates of Catholic schooling in the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have a lot of people who are incredibly generous with, with their time with Catholic schools, and that's great. We don't want to lose that. We're not saying that's somehow bad, or that, you know, that people who are running the CCD programs right now aren't doing a good job. We're not, we're not saying anything about that. What we're saying is that right now it looks like we could be more attentive to growing the church and attentive to people who have not met Christ, or if they have met him, they've forgotten all about him. So, you know, somebody might say, well, that's not a big deal for us around here. Maybe we live out in the country, and out in the country, you know, everybody goes to church. Well, I would say half of everybody goes to church, and of that half, a quarter of that half goes to the Catholic Church, but half of the community isn't going to church, Mm -hmm. which means, uh, to quote the movie Top Gun, we are in what we would call a target-rich environment. And so we can look out and just see that there are people all around us who are not part of the body, uh, the body of Christ, that is, and people who do not know Christ in a deep, moving, and fulfilling way. So when we look at our parishes, parishes are the primary structural organ of the diocese. They're like cells of the body. And we need parishes, if the church is going to grow, to focus again, internally and externally. So we're asking them to do that really by focusing on three things, and none of this is a surprise. But those three things are really leadership, coming into the church, what we might sort of call generally formation, and then also responsibility. So we have three particular characteristics that we're outlining for a missional community. So under the kind of the umbrella title of within six years, every church in the archdiocese will be a missional community. It's this big, bold, kind of audacious goal that we want that goal in individual parishes to have three basic characteristics. And those three characteristics are, first, uh, collaborative leadership, second, a clear path of discipleship, and third, a culture of generosity. Let me just talk about each of those kind of in the most concrete ways possible. So collaborative leadership is, uh, so first of all, we don't want to hear this again with any kind of political overtones. We don't want to hear this as old versus new or conservative versus liberal. This has nothing to do with any of that. So, you know, open up the New Testament and you don't even need a theological explanation for it, just a simple historical explanation. If you look in the life of the New Testament, not, not every name you see in the Acts of the Apostles was a cleric. You know, uh, they are followed by groups of people who are assisting them in the administration of the church. So this is kind of, I don't want to call it originalism, but I would say that this has been part of the church from the from the beginning of the church, and it's part of the church right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a pastor has a parish council, a finance council, a school board, a PTA, a booster club, you know, an endowment board. There's a variety of different groups of people who already assist the pastor, and we want those groups to stay. What we're asking pastors to do is to think, who are the people around me who can assist me in carrying out the goal of making my parish missional? So right now, the people on your finance committee are usually their accountants or bookkeepers or people with some kind of experience in that way. You know, I wouldn't choose a philosophy professor probably to be on my finance committee. I would much more likely choose, you know, uh, someone who works down at the bank to be on my finance committee because that's their area of expertise. So what we're asking pastors to do with collaborative leadership is to say, who are the people in my parish who have some kind of expertise? Who are those people and whom can I gather around me in order to execute on making my parish be missional. Now, what we think is that most pastors, in order to accomplish that, given the fact that parishes are more and more complex, and given the fact that there are fewer priests relative to the number of Catholics, what we think is that the starting place for most pastors with this will be a leadership team. Now, that does sound like corporate gobbledygook, and it 
it is on some level, but it also describes what exactly we're asking them to do. Mm -hmm. Namely, look around you and see who has expertise. In a different generation in the life of the church, the educational difference between the pastor and the people on the parish was enormous. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Because as we've had conversations internally, you were pointed out that the complexity of pastoral assignments has grown dramatically. Well, I would say that if you had a school in the old days and you had a priest and a couple of assistant pastors, you worked in a parish and the sisters mostly ran the school and it was just kind of a cash business. You know, and you might have had 800 to maybe 3,000 parishioners. 3,000 would have been a huge parish, you know, 50, mm-hmm. 50, 60 years ago. And in time, the parishes have just gotten bigger and bigger. So if you go to St. Stephen the Martyr Parish in West Omaha, it's one of our three largest parishes. It's probably difficult to tell on any day of the week, which is actually the biggest one. But you go out there, and they have about 70 employees. They have many hundreds of students in their school, many hundreds of students in their CCD program, They've got two priests, and they are surrounded by people who are professional people. Mm-hmm. You know, when I got out of the seminary, I had two master's degrees. I knew a handful of languages. I had a degree in economics and was totally unprepared to run a school with 500 people mm-hmm. or to be able to tell a principal how to run a school with 500 people. Totally unprepared to understand how to manage a physical plant. I said before, I've worked at Kmart. I've cleaned plenty of bathrooms. I've stocked <laughs> plenty of shelves. But that doesn't make me, doesn't give me the kind of expertise you need or even baseline experience you need to oversee an operation of that size. And while somebody might say, well, that's exceptional. St. Stephen the Martyr is you know, it's really big. Yeah, except that, you know, we all have the experience, anyone who works at a desk has the experience that, you know, the amount of paperwork that just has increased over time with HR and the amount mm-hmm. of legal work with, with properties. I mean, the world is getting more and more complex there's just more intricacy. So it's not really a surprise. You know, everything else is getting more complex, too. I had a TI-82, 3 calculator, you know, oh, yeah. when I was in... Things. Yeah, I mean, it was a great little graphing calculator. My iPhone makes that thing look like a dinosaur. And, you know, think about automobiles. I mean, the difference between my crummy little Honda Civic and the car I had when I was in high school, a 1989 Plymouth Acclaim, I mean, they're just totally different. I mean, the complexity increases. So the same thing's happening in our parishes. And it's unfair to say to our pastors, you who have two master's degrees, one in theology and one in divinity, which is mostly just kind of pastoral counseling and, and, and being nice to people, that's a dramatic overstatement, but I mean, you know, to say to them, okay, you now have all the tools to make this happen, well, it's just unreasonable. And it it isn't true. Mm -hmm. And so we don't want to just say, hey, you have to go accomplish this goal. We say, go accomplish this goal and gather people around you who know what they're doing. And then lean on them to assist you in the execution of the administration of your parish. Now, that doesn't mean give away all of your responsibility. Dad still pays the bills. Mm -hmm. You know, we were talking internally here about this. The difference between being a dad to kids and a dad to adults So my dad uh, was reflecting the other day. He said that next year, all six of my kids will be in their 40s. And uh, he has a different relationship Mm -hmm. than he did when all six of his kids were under the age of 10. You know, and so you relate to people just in a different way. And so now what we're saying is we're in a different time. The the education was so dramatically different between a priest and his people. And when parishes weren't altogether that intricate from a corporate standpoint— Now what we're saying is they are more intricate, they are more difficult, gather people around you, and and think of of just, here are all these adults who know what they're doing, who know Christ just like I do. They're going to collaborate according to their expertise. I'm going to collaborate according to my expertise. I'm going to invite them to help me carry this load. I mean, that seems to me to be kind of a no-brainer. And I would say on bad days, I told you I deal with clergy issues, on bad days when when things don't go well with clergy, what I hear over and over again is, why can't these pastors, now there aren't very many of them like this, but, you know, why can't they just let us help them? Mm. And I think, oh, that's a really good question. You know, and if I'm running a parish that's a tiny little parish where I can do it all by myself, maybe I don't need a whole lot of that. But we don't have very many of those left. I was pastor of St. Leonard's in Madison and had 1,000 parishioners, 993, 334 families, 54 kids in the school. And that parish is no longer its own parish. I mean, it's a parish, but it no longer has a resident priest. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the parishes that exist where one guy can just kind of manage it all, those parishes are gone. So, or there are very, there are very few. The average parish is more complex than someone can do as a Lone Ranger. 
you know, as I, I listen to you talk, it, it almost sounds like you're trying to give our pastors permission to go back to the basics and say, like, the responsibilities that you're carrying are now way larger than the pastoral model that you were handed, you know, kind of father does it alone. And permission to draw co-laborers along with you for the administration of the parish and then ultimately for the fulfillment of the mission. I would have one small quibble in language, and my small quibble is I'm not giving them permission. Christ gave them permission. Fair enough. So this is not anything that is... I mean, I'm a canon lawyer. I'm a practicing canon lawyer. My particular area of practice is clergy law, and I can say nothing here is contrary to what the church asks us to do. And if you go to other countries... I remember once I was on a mission trip in Guatemala. We sat down in this this room without air conditioning, and they gave us this like six-hour-long, sitting-on-the-floor presentation about how their diocese is arranged. And they just said, like, uh, you know, the priest has 38 little missions he has to go to, and so over here we have this, and over here we have this, and over here we have this, and over here we have this. And all they did was describe everything in line with what the church teaches. Mm-hmm. And they said, uh, this is totally different than how you do things. And I said, you're right. It is. But well, both of them are allowed. So... The necessity is the mother of invention. We just can't keep thinking that we're in a place where one man shows can do it. Well, and unless we get, you know, too kind of like self-centered about it, there's a fruitfulness in the church in Guatemala and Africa where, you know, the, the priest is, is kind of going on circuit. These communities are growing and thriving and evangelizing. And not that everything's perfect there, to be sure, but there's a life there. And there's a, a fruitfulness that's in a model very different from our own experience. Right. I, I remember when we were looking at some of the numbers of clergy for the uh, pastoral planning process, and there was an inverse correlation to the priest per capita and the churches of the world that seemed to be growing. Many of the persecuted churches in Asia and Africa seem to be growing, where places like the United States, Europe, where there's still a relatively high priest per parishioner uh, ratio, we're the ones who are shrinking. Right. We have an incredible abundance here of clergy. People get really surprised when we say that. But relative to most of the Southern Hemisphere, we are killing it here in mm-hmm. terms of priest-to-people ratios. I remember a time uh, a man once said to me, he was from another country, and he said, you know, in my home country, my village had mass twice a year. And maybe another two times a year, we would walk to the next village because whenever you had mass, then there'd be a big party, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, now I live here, and I go to mass like 25 times a year. And I call my mother, who's a deeply faithful Catholic woman, who says, why are you going to mass so much? That's ridiculous. And Father, here you are telling me that if I don't go to mass every Sunday, that I need to go to confession before I receive communion because skipping mass is a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. And I'm just trying to figure this out. <laughs> and, you know, that's where we see this culture clash mm-hmm. because— in, in fact, for us, it is—maybe the coronavirus has taught us this—that, mm-hmm. I mean, we have—the the Mass is so incredibly available here. And then we begin to just kind of think of it as, well, it's, a, you know, it's kind of a commodity. It's something I want. I, I want Mass to be as convenient as Starbucks. And, and in of, Omaha, it almost is. In Omaha, it almost is, right. Yeah, I have friends who move here from other places, and whenever they hear somebody complain about Mass, they say, just go move to the South. You know, go move to go move to— places where you share one priest with six parishes and didn't then tell me about about missing mass. Anyway, we're off topic. Yeah, no, that's so, that's super helpful. So concretely for collaborative leadership, what's a what's a baby step? Let, you know, let's say you've got and keep in mind our listeners are both priests, pastors, but also dearies, youth ministers, just faithful missionary disciples, living their day job, business card says architect, but my, you know, my real job is to share my faith. What's a baby step? For them, how does how does this kind of first step bringing this idea of, of co-laboring together to become a missional community? What's the first step in that? Well, if I were a pastor, and I say this just mindful of the fact that I was only a pastor for two years and have a wealth of inexperience in this regard, I would encourage pastors to think, you know, can I accomplish this goal by myself? And if I can't, whom would I ask to help me with this? Just mm-hmm. really concretely, because I think the next two items really inform this more. The next two items shape the kind of people you're looking for. Good. But if I were a layperson, I would say, if this is something I feel passionate about, I should call my pastor and say, can you come over for dinner and can we talk about this? And the first step is, is I would make a relationship. And the second step is that I would offer to help. 
And, you know, in broad strokes, men like to feel useful and competent. So if you call up your pastor and you say you're doing a, a crummy job, just expect he's never going to call you back. You know, I mean, because... Oh, oh wait, wait, so just to be clear, not a good idea. Not a good idea. Not recommended. Right. So, but if you call your pastor and you say, look, I, I think, I think I can be helpful here. Think about it, pray about it. Invite him over to dinner or invite him out to coffee, break bread with the man, and then say, how can I help? And also put together your list of people who might also bring other facets to that group and say, we want to help you with this. What can we do? That's, that's fantastic. And I might add for those who are listening, there's some conversation starters. The, the recorded version of the pastoral conference is linked on the Equip website, as well as some self-assessments around these characteristics designed to help start using this podcast. I mean, share this with some friends and use it as a, as a starter for the conversation. So then collaborative leadership leads into the next quality. So, you know, we don't just want pastors to have another meeting or to start another group. We want them to accomplish something. And what we want them to accomplish is having a missional community. So the two ways we think that happens are the next two characteristics. The first one being a clear path to discipleship, such that the pastor and these gathered leaders will provide a year-round way for any person who's in the parish, regardless of what level they're at, from birth until death, from opposed to the faith to uh, deeply faithful, that there will be something for each of those people whereby they can continue to receive enrichment in the life of the faith, formation in the life of the faith, preparation in the light of the faith. Can you talk more about that? You you kind of, you emphasized year-round. Right. So what happens now very often is Easter happens in April-ish, and when Easter happens, then people go to the Easter vigil, or they see someone they know who enters into the life of the church, or they go to their child's first communion in May, or they, you know, they go to confirmation in May or June, and they say, oh, I'm finally ready to become Catholic, because mm-hmm. maybe I was Lutheran or Methodist or nothing, or, you know, and, I, and now I'm ready. So they go see their pastor, and their pastor says, oh, we don't really have anything. So why don't you go join the Knights of Columbus, who are great. I'm a past day chaplain. I like the Knights. Or I suppose now they say, maybe you can help clean the pews after Mass, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but How are you with Lysol? That's right. Or they just say, come back in the fall when we have our CIA. So practically what that's saying is, like so many things in our culture, we just run on an academic calendar. Mm-hmm. But the way it's often received is, I am glad you are so happy that I'm coming into your community that you have nothing to offer me right now. Yeah, it, and, it's so tragic. Because it, when it works, when the witness of somebody else who's found a treasure, who joins the church, again, whether that's a second grader with their first communion or a beautiful Easter vigil— and someone's inspired to take that step. I mean, it's like coming to Jesus, and he's like, well, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I have nothing to offer you for another five months. That's right. Now, and I would say some of our parishes do this really excellently. And I would say that the parish where I live right now, they have year-round coming into the life of the church at St. Peter's. That's really beautiful. It's just all of a sudden it will be announced, oh, so-and-so is getting confirmed at the Sunday Mass. Oh, it's wonderful. Really beautiful experiences of that. But in many places, again, because we're kind of working the church system you know, you just, mm-hmm. people just kind of, well, come back, come back when this happens. And so what we find is that there just isn't a lot on offer about the most constitutive elements of the Christian life, which the most being the, the experience of prayer. So teaching people how to pray, teaching people how to grow in prayer, teaching people how to have a Christian community, providing a way for people to be accompanied, you know, the, the just positive human connection with other people of faith. Over and over again, those things just are not on offer. And, of course, if you see where the growth of the church is, you'll see that wherever the church grows, the growth of kind of small communities is present, and the the formation throughout life is Mm -hmm. present. I'm part of one of the ecclesial movements, and the ecclesial movements are big around the world. They're just coming into the United States. The reason why they haven't been here previously, heretofore, is because our parishes were strong. Mm-hmm. You know, if you live in a small ethnic community and you live with all of your relatives, you live in a Catholic world. That world is gone now. You know, it used to work. Your family was Catholic. That provided the soil. And then you went to either catechism or Catholic school, and that provided the seed. And the culture was enough for a while, for a very brief while. Now, prior to the Civil War and really after the 1950s, that, that world, that was a, 
a, a flash in the pan historically. Mm-hmm. But that used to work. It doesn't work now. And if we thought, and, and again, I would just go back to our previous statistic, the number of Catholics is increasing. The number of Catholics who practice their faith is decreasing. So w- whatever we're doing right now isn't working. So if we want to get that half of all the people who live in, you know, Cedar County, half of all the people who live in Platt County, half of all the people who live in, in whatever, Fort Pierce County and Forty County, if we want to get those people, we can't just say, well, why aren't they coming in October when we announced RCIA? Well, yeah. Because you didn't invite them to something. Father, I love that you referenced ecclesial movements there, because I'm reminded a lot of commentators, they'll say, like, gosh, why can't our parishes feel more like ecclesial movements? And the funny thing is, is I think you pointed out, like, well, our parishes used to feel that they used to be ecclesial movements. They used to be ethnic communities, movements. That raises an interesting point, though, because you referenced earlier, and this is, I think, another characteristic of ecclesial movements, in addition to providing all that relational, movements often have something on offer for people at every stage of the spiritual journey. Yeah, there, there's clearly, if you've ever had any association, deep formation in prayer, deep formation in, in the life of discipleship, of being called forth into mission. But almost every movement has a clear way in, whether it's an introductory retreat or whether it's just a f- friendship, the members who just somehow manage to make friends and draw people in. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect, that meeting people at every stage of the spiritual journey? Right. I mean, right now we don't. Right now we invite everybody at whatever age they're at to come to Mass on Sunday. So in that sense, everybody's welcome at Mass. (laughs) But the idea that I'm going to provide something for someone, let's say I have a group of widows, or let's say I have someone who's an empty nester, or someone who has high school kids for the first time, or somebody who's divorced, or, or somebody who is kind of lukewarm in their faith, or somebody who's brand new and they want to know what to do. Or, or, or uh, hostile, has no church background whatsoever. Right. Think of it like a kickoff in football. Wherever the ball lands, so long as it's on the field, we're ready to receive it, and we're going to run. And it doesn't matter if it runs one foot outside of the end zone or 15 yards outside of the end zone. Wherever the receiver catches it, he's going to try to take it to the other side of the field. And we want to think that wherever somebody comes to us and they say, can you tell me more that we have something for them, that, that we look at that person as an opportunity, we have unfortunately and not purposefully reduced parish life in many places to a commodity. And that commodity is Mass on Sunday, Confessions on Saturday afternoon, Mass during the week in the morning, and funerals and weddings and quinceañeras when you want them. But the idea that I would find a home here is foreign. And home is home for me if I'm having a bad day or a good day, if I'm going through a rough patch or going through a great patch. Home is where I go to share my life. And that experience of parishes has been lost. So what we're asking for this clear path of discipleship is that wherever you fall, no matter what, you're going to have a place to connect. You know, and if you open up Acts, I forget which chapter it is, but, you know, St. Luke is writing Acts, and St. Paul dictated most of it to him, but St. Luke is writing it in the early 60s when St. Paul's in prison. And St. Luke describes the day that he met St. Paul. It was in 51. He was in Troas, and, and it's really subtle. He says, they, 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 we, 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 and the pronoun changes. And that's how you know that St. Luke accompanied St. Paul. And on the first day that St. Luke accompanied St. Paul, he was just a physician in Troas. St. Luke, 11 years later, was Paul's bosom companion when Paul was under arrest for the first time in Rome, and he wrote his gospel, and he wrote the Acts. But he had to start somewhere, and he started from nothing, and he got to St. Luke. And what we need to do is we need to be prepared to receive anybody, no matter where they're at. But if we don't give them a path... All we end up giving them is a task, and the task that we give them is come to church on Sunday. Or a step that doesn't fit them. Maybe a way to describe this is, how does your parish meet pre-conversion Augustine? How does St. Augustine plug into your parish community? Because, I mean, you know, his famous conversion, as you start to, like, pull it out, you can see he's been part of the Christian community, although he is clearly not a Christian yet. He's been part of the Christian community for quite some time, and that is sadly such a rare instance unless you find an ecclesial movement. That's not typically what happens in our parishes right now. Right. But it can be. And it is what used to. 
Yeah. Talk a little bit about, you know, the culture of, of generosity here, because all of these, I think you've said before, and I'll give you a chance to expand on it, that these are additive, that they're building on one another. And I think you can see this as we talk about, okay, a clear path of discipleship is, gosh, that's going to require a few more hands on, on deck to be able to welcome these individuals at this stage of the journey. Culture of generosity seems like it's a conviction that, that generosity is an overflow from a life of discipleship, and yet there's also a conviction about the need to cultivate that generosity. Talk a little bit about what it is and where it fits in with becoming and, and leveraging to, to be a missional community. There are two times in the New Testament where Jesus sends people out two by two, once in Galilee and once before he heads down to Jerusalem in the last four or five months of his life. The first time he sends out 12, the second time he sends out the 70 or the 72, depending on your translation. And in particular, when he sends out the 12, this is in Mark 6, this is where the anointing of the sick first is mentioned, as it turns out. But in Mark 6, he sends them out, he says, heal the sick, anoint them with oil, go out and, and, and just meet people and spend time with them. But what's happened is is that before he has sent them out, he's gotten to know them. And once they get to know him, and once they become convinced that he's the Messiah, and remember that St. Mark's Gospel was written, by, was written by Mark, but it was dictated to him by Peter. And Peter was the third or the fourth of the disciples. So the first disciples were John and Andrew. John recounts in the first chapter of his Gospel that he meets Jesus after John says, Behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist says that. And then John and Andrew uh, meet Jesus. It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. John remembers this 60 years later when he's writing his gospel. He goes home and tells his brother, James, we found the Messiah. And Andrew goes home and tells his brother, Simon, we found the Messiah. And so Simon meets Christ. He has not yet been called Peter, and upon that rock the church has not yet been built. But Jesus says to Peter, okay, now you know me, you recognize who I am. Now I want you to go. I want you to go. Go, go do something. I want you... I want you to experience that knowing me means you have to tell other people about me. But Jesus tells them how to tell other people about him. And the way to tell other people about him is particularly to speak the message of Christ into people's suffering. And that is the spot where we're almost always prepared to receive him. Almost no one receives Christ from a position of fullness, from a position of, I don't have any needs. Christ responds to need. You know, if I'm self-satisfied, why do I need God? So what we're convinced of then are really two things. One is, if I've met Jesus and I know Jesus, I will experience, as Christians before me have always experienced, a desire for that love to overflow into my experience with other people. That is the experience of mercy, that essentially people aren't reducible to their good qualities or their bad qualities. People are reducible only to the fact that Christ makes them. And so in the end, when I know Christ and I know who I am and I know my identity in Christ, inevitably, my cup runneth over it. It sloshes around. And I, I, I want to go and see people and spend time with them and bring the balm of Christ. So, so that's, that's, that's mm. one side of it. The, the other side of it that we know, though, is that I most often experience Christ through other people. So when Jesus sent out the 12, it wasn't just so that the 12 could kind of, you know, if you think about like if you... I knew this guy in college who was a football player in high school, and they used to eat an entire honey bear before, before a football game. They'd squeeze that whole honey bear into their mouth, and then you'd go play football. And you, know, you just had all that energy. You had to get it out. That's part of the experience of a culture of generosity, which is I know Christ. Again, he's sloshing around inside of me. I'm filled with this energy. I have to go and be among people who are suffering. That's mm -hmm. one part. But the other part is that people meet Christ through me. So when I go, I, I I'm not patting myself on the back. I just, the time, uh, here's a time when it was clear for me. I volunteered for a year down at the Stevens Center when my parish schedule allowed. And I would be there every Friday morning for two hours. And Friday's my day off, and I'd love to go down there and spend time there, and I would just answer the door and buzz people in and out. And after about six months of being there, people would come and find me and say, Father, can I go to confession? But it took all that time mm. of my just being there among them before they would finally like begin to trust me and begin to know me. And those were truly evangelical moments because I, I was just there among them. I was just there as a, as a sign of mercy. And so on the one hand, there's my desire to overflow. But on the other hand, people very often in the history of the, the experience of the church, 
they see us live out mercy and they're drawn by it. We all know the story about Mother Teresa. She'd be helping someone to death, uh, not hastening their death, but just helping them in the moment yeah. of death. And they would say, who, who are you and why are you doing this? And she says, because I'm a Christian. And then and they say, well, how do I become that? Whatever that is, I want I to be want that. that. You know, so that, that experience, you're different. How can I be like that? That's what generosity tells us. Mm-hmm. Now, we also know that we live in a world where uh, the simple fact of the matter is is that money is incredibly powerful. So it's not just it's not just acts of mercy. It's not just the corporal and the spiritual works of mercy. We're also convinced because our experience tells us this that responsibility means I'm even if I can't physically go and do something, we want to encourage people in their generosity to say how can I assist people who are. And this is of course, you know, some people who are listening, I don't know if they're I don't know who the oldest person is who might be listening, but some people are old enough to listen to, used to save, you know, nickels and dimes to send them to the missions because the yeah. missionaries needed things. And the missionaries have this really clever phrase. They say, some give by going and some go by giving. I used to use that <laughs> phrase, but I was fundraising as a missionary. <laughs> right. So not everybody can do everything, but, you know, Mother Angelica used to say, put us between your phone bill and your electric bill. Those little acts of generosity, and sometimes very big acts of generosity, I mean, think here in Nebraska, we have the Cloisters on the Platte. You know, Mr. Mm-hmm. Ricketts, who built TD Ameritrade, you know, he was moved by going to the Ignatian weekend retreats. And now that place is on fire over there. Mm-hmm. And he built this amazing location where weekend in and weekend out, there are people whose lives are changed there. So that experience, when we talk about generosity, what we're talking about is that I am moved in the ways that I can to assist those in need. And I'm certain that by doing that, people will see Christ through me if I'm attentive to Christ and acting out of having met him previously. So if we tie all that together, we want pastors to gather around them a group of people who can help them execute those two particular categories. I want a way to provide this year-round itinerary this clear path of discipleship for people, no matter where they're at on the Christian journey. And I also want them to be able to provide a way so that those same people, once the match head is on fire, so to speak, so that they'll have a place to direct that. And we have something positive to propose to them. Right, because there is a need for shepherding. And I think as we reflected on this, the role of the pastor to help people recognize their particular giftings, their charism, to just a little bit of equipping to help them find the place where they're called to serve. I mean, there, there should be a, a desire to serve this kind of overflowing that's bubbling up inside them because of that encounter, but there is still a role for pastors and their delegates to help people find their place, to help equip them for their particular mission, whether it be corporal works of mercy, spiritual works of mercy, financial stewardship, all of that that there's a cultivation and a, a shepherding, if you will, that for people to find their, their outlet. One other thing I thought it was interesting, I think the stewardship piece, the financial aspect, I think is it's gotten my attention because you know, most of us are thinking, it's like, okay, I'm not a billionaire, but even if you're lower middle class in the United States, you're one of the wealthiest people in the history of humanity. And it would be a crime for us to not attend to financial stewardship simply because of the fact that so many of us have been given so much. Our failure to attend to that would be to our harm. The knowledge that I've been given things is it's almost un-American because our notion of Americans is that everything I have, I've earned. And I'm an American. I love the United States. I used to think I was Italian-American, then I lived out of the United States, then I realized really quickly, I'm just American. And then in time, <laughs> I'm a Nebraskan. So, but all that being said, I, th- I think sometimes the reason why there's reticence about thinking that what I have is given, that, that reticence comes from the sense that we believe as Americans in the myth of the self-made man. But a man of faith, a woman of faith knows that what I am most basically is you make me. And when I say you, I mean Christ. And when I go, this morning I had my holy hour, this morning before Mass at 645. And, you know, I'm sitting there praying, and so fundamental is this notion that it's not that I exist and God exists, like as if we're two separate beings. I mean, this is kind of like basic philosophy and theology 101. God is not a person outside of me. God is being. And 
it's not like I can choose for God to be important in my life or not. God is important in my life. I cannot be reduced beyond you make me. And that means that everything that I am, which is around me, everything I have, except the things that I mess up, everything at some level is a gift. Now, I collaborate, cooperate, that's true. But everything that I have is a gift. And so when we speak of finances, that doesn't mean we don't want to say, well, then nothing belongs to me. Well, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that if I know myself to be utterly dependent on Christ, if I know that there are things I have in my life that have nothing to do with my own merit, and if I know that there are countless people around me who live in circumstances that are horrible, that have nothing to do with their own merit or fault, mm-hmm. then, then it is good for me to give of what I have received. Now, I think somebody who is really important, who died on a cross for us, said something like that as well. Mm-hmm. But it's taken me a while to have my eyes open to this. You know, I'm from West Omaha. Uh, again, I, I've been to 24 years of schooling. I never wanted for anything as a child, even though we all kind of lived in this myth that, oh, we weren't rich. Mm-hmm. Well, we weren't rich by, we didn't live in Regency. You know, I mean, we weren't, we weren't mm-hmm. rich by, by American standards of rich, but everything I had, I needed. And now I work with, with people who, you know, who came here from another country. Things were so bad, they were willing to move to another country to risk deportation, to not speak the same language of their children, to abandon their extended relations, to come here in a place to a culture that wasn't their own just for the thought that their kids might have a better life. I mean, that, I don't want to get political, but I mean, that, that is the definition of something that's given to me. In political terms, you speak of privilege. I don't really want to talk about that. But that that's really, that's all been given to me. And the person who gave that all to me is Christ. And there are other people in situations where they simply cannot face their circumstances. That's what poverty is. Mm-hmm. It's, here's a circumstance, I can't overcome it. And since I know Christ, and because I know Christ holds that person in the palm of his hand, to know him is to be moved for a desire to help that person. So financial stewardship you know, we kind of hem and haw around it, and I was doing it a second ago. Oh, you know, I'm, you know, you feel kind of bad asking for money. But, you know, the long experience of Christians is when I know Christ, helping someone else is easy. And it's only hard to ask for money when you're talking to people who don't know Christ. Well said. Father, this has been a fantastic conversation. Just as we wrap up here, you know, one of the things that we, we've said as we reflect on this, not only do we see these particular characteristics being additive, they don't articulate all the entirety of what makes up a missional community, but that there's a conviction that we have that these particular characteristics, if we can attend to them, that they're like levers, that they help bring about this reality. Any closing thoughts as we kind of end our conversation today, as you think about the, again, priests, pastors, DREs, just faithful missionary disciples, those folks that are listening to this. Any closing thoughts, encouragement, recommendations for them? Uh, real simple one. I, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I used to like to watch all of those shows where, like, Gordon Ramsay would go visit restaurants and they'd be failing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he'd like to scream at them a lot and all those things. Or, like, bar rescue or hotel rescue or restaurant rescue. I don't know what it is. I'm a priest. I like to save people, you know. So <laughs> I would say I, I just I like those shows. And one of the things that always struck me was how hard it was for people to set aside practices that weren't fruitful because they wanted them to be fruitful. And I think at, when I was a pastor, again, wealth of inexperience, I, there were many things I thought, this is the right way, and I, I, I wasn't willing to accept that maybe my vision wasn't always 100% correct. Father Harry Boozy, who's your pastor, he has this phrase, he says, sometimes dreams are harder to let go of than reality. And I think we really want our parishes to be these big, huge, thriving places the way they used to be in some idyllic past if it ever existed. And I would say the reality in front of us is that if we don't change something, we're going to be in a bad way. And my opinion is that it is rare, if not never, that you find one person or two people who for a parish can bear that whole thing on their shoulders, whether they're priests or lay people. Mm-hmm. And that the best way to go about this is to say, I need competent people who can help me bring more people here and who can help me see the needs of other people 
because Jesus told me that that's a constitutive part of being a Christian. I think we just are proposing Christianity and saying to people, things can be different and fuller and more beautiful, and this is how. Yeah. If, if Jesus is calling, he's providing a way, and he's providing companions for the journey. So thank you, Father. This has been fantastic. Maybe we'll have, have you on the show again. We can do, I don't know how you do a gastronomic tour of Northeast Nebraska with a podcast. We'll get to work on that, figure out how we do that. But thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. And if you need to know how, go listen to The Splendid Table on PBS. Yeah, Because uh, she show. manages, what's her name? Lynn Loretto Casper, mm, is that her name? I don't uh, know. Anyway, she, uh, they're able to do it. So yeah. <laughs> anyway. Okay, Thank you we'll for work time. on that. Thanks, Father. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for joining us, everybody. Again, if you would like to subscribe, we're on all the major podcasting platforms. Equipcast, all one word. And if you want to get the show notes, blog, everything else, all the goodies that go with this, look at uh, equip.archomaha.org. Thanks for being with us.